Well, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 5, our consideration this morning is the third beatitude that Jesus gives found in verse 5. And while you're finding that, let's pray together for just a moment. Our Father, we come to you now this morning thanking you for the Word of God, thanking you for the revelation of your very mind. And in particular, this morning, we continue to see this glorious Sermon on the Mount, the words of our Savior, Jesus, and what he intended to convey to those hearing him in his very first major public address. And so we ask you, Lord, to impress upon our hearts the very same sort of impact that certainly happened in that day, on that glorious day when the Lord Jesus Christ opened his mouth and spoke the very words of heaven. We pray that that would be the impact on our hearts this day. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Our focus for the Beatitudes has been the joy of the Christian. And today we'll look at joy for the humble. And what I'd like to hopefully prove to you this morning is that true Christian joy is really rooted in expectation. Christian joy is rooted in anticipation. It goes far beyond emotion, goes far beyond feeling. Christian joy really can include emotion, but is very theological as opposed to emotional. Or to put it this way, true Christian joy is rooted in the fact that God will do all that He said He's going to do. That's where our joy comes from. Now, this might not be readily apparent as we look at joy for the humble but I trust it will become clearer by the time we're done. We'll return at the very end to see if we've proven that true Christian joy is rooted in expectation, in anticipation that we serve a God who never changes and always keeps His promises. That's where we get our joy. This morning we're considering Matthew 5, verse 5. Jesus continues, Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. And we, once again, are confronted here by the paradoxical nature of the Beatitudes. They're they're ironic. That the one who, in verse 3, is poor in spirit, the one in verse 4, mourns. And now the one who's lowly, that those are the ones who are blessed by God. Poor in spirit, mourning, lowly. And in fact, even now, the Beatitudes are becoming more difficult. They're becoming... More challenging, at least from a human standpoint, blessing on the lowly is more challenging than even blessing on the poor in spirit and on those who mourn. Why is that? Well, if you're poor in spirit, you realize your own spiritual poverty, your weakness, your helplessness, those who mourn up to and including mourning our own sin, mourning all the effects of sin in the world. That's, that's really an internal heart attitude. But blessing on the lowly lowliness now goes outside of yourself and and includes others and not in a pleasant way. Being poor in spirit, being the one who mourns, focuses on what I believe, what I say about myself. Being lowly, though, enters into the realm of what others think of me, what others say about me. Being poor in spirit and mourning involves saying, I am a sinner in need of great grace. Being lowly involves others saying, you're a terrible person, you're unworthy, you're less. 
Being lowly involves receiving and enduring spiritual oppression from a world that hates Christians, a world that hates Christ, a world that mocks you, that thinks that, that you're, you're passe, that you're way past your prime religiously, so to speak. And so this is a rich, rich topic because it really helps us understand how to interact with the world. And I wanted to try to kind of take this apart and to help us understand what Jesus is saying here. I'm just going to give you three statements about this beatitude. Three statements. I'll give them all to you up front and then we'll repeat them again. The first statement is that Jesus taught a familiar concept. Jesus taught a familiar concept. The second statement, Jesus gave the top resource. He gave the top resource. And the third statement, Jesus asserted his kingly sovereignty. Jesus asserted his kingly sovereignty. So Jesus taught a familiar concept. We'll do that briefly. Jesus gave the top resource. We'll spend a little more time on that. Jesus asserted his kingly sovereignty. We're going to explore that the most because that's really the major point here. So let's just briefly do our first statement. Jesus taught a familiar concept. He taught a familiar concept. You recall the scene. Jesus is on this beautiful hillside that's overlooking the Sea of Galilee. He's surrounded by both his chosen disciples and many others who were following after him, wanting to hear what he had to say because of the massive healing ministry, which we've seen in chapter 4 in a couple different places. And as he opened his mouth and began to preach this sermon of all sermons, when he said, Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. To all the Jews listening, this was not new information to them. This was not a, a brand new concept. In fact, it would have been very familiar to them because Jesus is making a very clear reference to a specific Old Testament text, one written by Israel's beloved King David. And in fact, the, the text was written in such a way that it was supposed to be memorable. It was supposed to be easy to, to grasp, easy to memorize even, because it was written as an acrostic, with each small portion of this particular text beginning with successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And you've probably already guessed, and we're going to turn there once again to Psalm 37. Turn with me to Psalm 37, because Jesus is giving them a, a spiritual trigger point, something that's very familiar to them. He's not just reminding them of something that uh, maybe they heard once. This is a major psalm written by King David. And what we would see here is that when Jesus says, blessed are the lowly or blessed are the humble or, or probably more familiar to you, blessed are the meek, they would know this. He's not merely speaking of an internal decision to have an attitude of humility or to have an attitude of being humble or to have an attitude of being meek or to have an attitude of being lowly. It goes beyond that. It's not just, because the reference is to Psalm 37, it's not just that I have chosen to be humble. It's that I've been humbled by others. I've been humiliated by others. I've been made to seem meek and weak by others. I've been made to seem lowly. I've been humiliated by others because I've stood firm in my faith in God while suffering for faith. That's the major emphasis of Psalm 37. Look with me at Psalm 37, verse 8. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off. But those who hope for Yahweh, 
they will inherit the land. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Verse 10, yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more. You will look carefully at his place and he will not be there. But the lowly will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant peace. And three more times in this text, inherit the land, inherit the land, inherit the land. There is no doubt whatsoever that Jesus is essentially quoting from Psalm 37. So when Jesus said, blessed are the lowly for they shall inherit the earth. This would have triggered Psalm 37 in in the context of letting it be okay to be humiliated, to be made lowly, to be humbled while you wait and while you hope in the Lord. And in fact, the proper perspective is found by looking at this wicked world that we're stuck in from God's perspective to take the heavenly lenses just for a moment. And we see these in verse 12. The wicked schemes against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. Here's the heavenly perspective. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. That's heaven's perspective. And so our first statement, Jesus taught a familiar concept. This wasn't brand new information. This was was bringing from the Old Testament, from Psalm 37, something that these people were familiar with, and beginning now to teach it in a way that's going to give some expansive understanding. Let's move on to our second statement to help us understand this particular beatitude, Jesus gave the top resource. He gave the top resource. Jesus might as well have said, if you want to understand what it means to be lowly, you have only to go to Psalm 37. And look, we're already there. So, I'm not going to try and do an exhaustive study of Psalm 37. There's 40 verses. It would take weeks to do this. But just as a a sample, what I want to show you is that Psalm 37 is a commentary on what it means to be lowly. What does that actually mean? I want to give you seven actions of the lowly. Seven actions of the lowly. Those who have a a true internal reality of faith in Christ. Those whose sins have been forgiven and they're counted as righteous in the courts of heaven. The first action of the lowly, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. And we'll begin at the very beginning here. Psalm 37, verse 1, to trust in the Lord. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward doers of unrighteousness. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in Yahweh and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Look at verse 5. Commit your way to Yahweh. Trust in Him and He will do it. You notice immediately that trusting in the Lord isn't just an attitude. It's not just a disposition. It's not just a belief. It's not just a a thought process. Verse 1, don't waste time envying the lost. Verse 3, do good. Verse 5, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Meaning be people who are productive and who spend their time doing wholesome things. That's trusting the Lord. The prophet Jeremiah continually told Israel that she would be punished and carried off by Babylon as as heavy, heavy discipline for century after century of unfaithfulness. But his clear message was that God was not going to forsake them forever, that they were, yes, going to be in exile for several generations, but his promises to Israel would come to pass. And that after they had endured this time of humbling, this time of humiliation, this time of oppression, this time of being made lowly, that he would restore them. But what did Jeremiah say to do in the meantime? While they're in captivity, 
Did he say, cry and weep and pray and fast continually because of your oppression? Did he say, be angry and incensed that the wicked Babylonians have enslaved you? Did he say, be continually upset at having to wait on the Lord? Be, be emotionally distraught. He didn't say any of that. It's actually quite surprising what he said. And this is how you trust the Lord. Jeremiah is told to say this. Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 4. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Does he say, cry and weep and pray and fast? No, he says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease Seek the peace of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf. For in its peace, you will have peace. What is he saying? Relax. You're going to be waiting a long time. Trusting the Lord means living your life today. Not living a future hope only. That's how they were to trust the Lord. The first action of the lowly, trust the Lord. Second action, delight in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. And you saw that word in verse 4. Delight yourself in Yahweh and He will give you the desires of your heart. Delight is a a great word. It's a word that means to refresh yourself. It can even mean to spoil or pamper yourself. You've all done that, especially men. You're you're driving around by yourself and and you see that place where your favorite ice cream is and you say, calories don't count because my wife isn't in the car. So you go and you say, I deserve this. I've worked hard. It's the same idea. You're spoiling yourself. You're, you're refreshing yourself, delighting in the Lord. It's a, a purposeful preoccupation with God. And what this does is by delighting in the Lord, you're not impressed with your own self-importance. You're, you're looking upward, not inward. You're looking quickly to Him. What a great example we had in Paul and Silas. They, they'd been beaten. They'd been put in stocks. They'd been put in the innermost maximum security portion of the local prison in Philippi. And what did they do? Acts 16.25 says that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And if you delight yourself in the Lord, He gives you the desires of your heart. And in context of Psalm 37, the greatest desire of the worshiper of God is to see justice done on this earth and wickedness dealt with. That desire will come to pass. It will happen. Trust in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. A third action. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. In verse 7, David says, Be still in Yahweh and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out schemes of wickedness. This, this phrase here, Be still in Yahweh. Metaphorically speaking, this is the opposite of pacing back and forth in anxiety. It's the opposite of that. And there's a a discipline of thinking commanded here. You notice that this is a theme in Psalm 37. Verse 1 says, fret not because of evildoers. Verse 7, fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. Verse 8, fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Lowliness means total submission to God. 
total submission to God, waiting on Him, living out your belief in the sovereign control of God, waiting on the Lord means living in dependence on Him, trusting Him for today, or if I could put it this way, and to really get as radical as we can to think about this, the lowly person is the one who is 100% convinced that he's a slave of God. And slaves don't have rights, they don't own anything, they have no dreams, no aspirations, no hopes. Instead, the slave subjects himself to God's will quietly with no resistance whatsoever. Trust in the Lord, delight in the Lord, wait on the Lord. Here's a fourth action, hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. Verse 9, for evildoers will be cut off, but those who hope for Yahweh, they will inherit the land. Hoping in the Lord is not in the sense of hoping for a good prognosis after you get some physical tests done. It's the, it's the sense of hoping and thinking about, dwelling on, meditating on, putting in your mind the thoughts of the coming vindication and justice of God. The certain hope is that the evildoers will be cut off and, and with our understanding of the grace of God also, every single wicked person in all of history will be cut off in one of two ways. God will either save him or judge him. But all wickedness will be cut off. God will either regenerate and give grace or he will not regenerate and give wrath. And that's on him. That's his choice. But every person who is evil will be dealt with. And that's everyone. God dealt with every one of you. He cut every one of you off. He cut you off from your pathway to hell. He cut you off from your pathway to selfishness. He cut you off from your lack of understanding. And instead, He brought you to salvation in Christ. And He changed you into a worshiper of God. And you are not considered evil anymore. You've been cut off. Trust in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Hope in the Lord. Here's a fifth action. Obey the Lord. Obey the Lord. And now this is just everywhere in this psalm. The, the obedience to the Lord is characteristic of the lowly. That's what you do when you're lowly. There's no such thing as a disobedient, lowly Christian. Lowliness is obedience. The humiliated who are waiting for the Lord's justice. And the clear delineation here is that those with genuine faith in the Lord, they're called the righteous and the implication is that now they behave righteously. They demonstrate that they're no longer associated with the wicked. Listen to all the references to the righteous. Verse 14, the wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy to slay those who are upright in conduct. Verse 17, for the arms of the wicked will be broken, but Yahweh sustains the righteous. Verse 21, the wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. Verse 25, I was young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or a seed begging bread. Verse 29, the righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Verse 30, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. Verse 39, but the salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh. He is their strength in time of distress. The book of 1 Peter is Peter essentially asking a, a rhetorical or, or a theoretical question and then answering it. And the rhetorical or theoretical question is, what do I do as a Christian in the midst of persecution and injustice and pain and suffering? What do I do? 
Peter's answer, 1 Peter 1.16, he reminds the reader that God has commanded, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's it. Be holy, for I am holy. And, and we're tempted to ask questions like, you mean not get indignant or get angry or throw myself into political activism so that I can, because the next election will change the course of history? Shouldn't I fret? Shouldn't I worry? Shouldn't I search for dark web revolutionary movements? No, be holy. Or to put it in Jeremiah 29 terms, build houses, have godly families, do godly things. And in 1 Peter, he's so practical and this is so daily life oriented. He says to be a good citizen, to be a good slave, to submit to your husband, to love your wife, to suffer for righteousness, to be ready to give an account of the gospel to the lost, be ready to evangelize, serve in the church. Elders should be good elders. Church members should be good church members. Resist the devil with your obedience. The lowly person obeys God without pushing back, without resisting in any area of your life in which you aren't living in dependence and submission. If I can put it this way, you're battling, you're struggling, you're opposing God. There's no joy in that. No Christian has ever found joy starting a prayer, but God, I don't like this command. Instead, lowliness has a spirit of resignation, a spirit of acceptance, a spirit of dependence and submission. Why is this so important? Because we get a glorious promise from Peter. 1 Peter 5.10 After you have suffered for a little while, What's the little while? Your whole lifetime. When we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, your little life is nothing. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and ground you. So what do you do? Be holy, for I am holy. Trust in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Hope in the Lord. Obey the Lord. Here's a sixth action. Listen to the Lord. Listen to the Lord. In verse 30 of Psalm 37, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. There's a cause and effect here. The effect is that the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. The cause is that the law of his God is in his heart. By this very simple formula of a life lived in the saturation of of the word of God, his steps do not slip. He's not beset by doubting. He's not beset by worrying. He's not worrying about anything. He's not fretting. In the midst of a life in which the wicked are prospering, the constant intake of the word of God gives them a firm footing. Let me put it this way. If you're stuck on the side of a mountain and you can't move up, down, sideways, left, right, any way at all, you can stay there for a long time as long as you have what? Firm footing. As long as you can just stay there until help arrives. Your whole life is firm footing if you trust the Lord and listen to the Lord. Because what you choose to listen to, the voices that influence are the determining factor in the level of joy you experience in this life. I've worked with church members who have an inexplicable depression and just constant negativity and they're just down about everything and everything in the world is, is just terrible. And I finally learned, I've been around long enough to finally learn to ask them this question, how much do you pay attention to the news? 
you know what I find so often? Oh, I have to watch it. I have 19 websites and I, I, I immerse myself. I want to know what's going on in the world. You know what you ought to do? Forget the news and open your Bible. They come back a week later and think I'm a genius. <laughs> if you want to read the news, that's fine. But you just do what the Lord does. The Lord laughs at him for he sees that his day is coming. Trust in the Lord, delight in the Lord, wait on the Lord, hope in the Lord, obey the Lord, listen to the Lord. Here's a seventh action, rest in the Lord. Rest in the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 18. Yahweh knows the days of the blameless and their inheritance will be forever. In verse 37, observe the blameless man and behold the upright for the man of peace will have a posterity, meaning he has a bright future. Now, the two words, the word that we have in common there, verse 18 and verse 37, is the term blameless. And we tend to get a little bit hung up on that. And we worry that our Bible may be asking of us sinless perfection. Let me try to simplify this concept for you. The best way to think of the idea of blamelessness in the Old Testament is not that the faithful worshiper of God is literally completely sinless, but that in the grace of God, God doesn't place blame. He doesn't place punishment on the worshiper for his sin. He is without blame. He is without guilt. Think of it this way. Psalm 32, beginning in verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account. What do you call someone who, who, for whom God is not blaming them for their sin? Blameless. In Christ, you are Blameless. 2 Corinthians 5.21, our classic blamelessness verse. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so you never have to worry about judgment. Don't spend one more second of your life worrying about judgment unless you have no assurance of salvation, which means you're walking in disobedience. Then you should worry about judgment. But if you're doing all of these other things, trusting the Lord, delighting in the Lord, waiting on the Lord, being lowly, then you're blameless. And you rest in the Lord that even as you're being humiliated, living in a world that hates you, you rest because your future is secure. You remember the silly little prayer we all learned as children, which happens to be Arminian, by the way. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. That is the dumbest prayer ever invented. (laughs) No, no, no. That's terrible theology. Instead, now I lay me down to sleep. I'm so glad I'm one of your sheep. And if I should die before I wake, thank you, thank you, my soul you'll take. That's resting in the Lord. Don't teach your children to fear. Teach him to trust the God of the gospel and the gospel of God. So what does it mean to be lowly? Trust in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Hope in the Lord. Obey the Lord. Listen to the Lord. Rest in the Lord. That's lowliness. And you can watch the world crumbling around you with, you can make some popcorn and just watch because the Lord laughs at what's coming. Now, this teaching from Jesus to the Jews listening was both instructive that only the spiritually saved will inherit the earth. 
but it was also reaffirming the whole point of Matthew that a messianic king is coming to establish the kingdom of Israel as well as to rule over the whole world. Remember, Jesus is referencing Psalm 37. It's important for us to not make salvation in Christ an invisible conceptual reality only. It's, it's an invisible spiritual thing only. Remember that salvation in Christ includes all the glorious in times eschatological realities to which the work of Christ on the cross to save you from your penalty, the penalty of your sin, all of it points to that. Because the reason for spiritual salvation is so that the kingdom of Christ on earth will be inhabited by kingdom citizens, those who were poor in spirit, who mourned their own sin, and who were lowly in their self-estimation. Remember, Jesus is referencing the very familiar Psalm 37. And by doing so, with the guarantee that the lowly will inherit the earth, that brings us to our third statement. First, Jesus taught a familiar concept. Second, Jesus gave the top resource, which is Psalm 37. But third, Jesus asserted his kingly sovereignty. He asserted his kingly sovereignty. How did he do that? Well, we're going to settle into this for the rest of our time together because to the Jews hearing a guarantee that they will inherit the earth was very exciting news. Generally speaking, in evangelicalism, there's a huge gap between the view of the New Testament and the view of the Old Testament. With the New Testament as being primary, the Old Testament, very often a a mysterious unknown which contains some great stories for us to moralize and, and produces some of the best coloring pages for kids ever known to man. The church has tended to place a huge disconnect between God's promises in the Old Testament and the teaching of Jesus. Like somehow that one little blank page between Malachi and Matthew uh, just means that everything has changed completely now. But in Matthew, remember that the ministry and the teaching of Jesus is precisely to demonstrate that all the promises in the Old Testament concerning a coming messianic kingdom are coming true in him. That's the whole point. And we said this earlier when we began the Gospel of Matthew that that Matthew is just saturated in the Old Testament because that's what it's doing. It It is written to the Jews to tell them that Messiah has come. And because there's been such a disconnect between Old Testament and New, the typical understanding of what it means to inherit the earth is immediately applied in the general sense to mean planet earth. That if you want to be in the kingdom someday, you must be lowly. That is true. That if you want to see the new earth someday in God's realm, you must be lowly. That is true. That Jesus is now expanding the promise of Psalm 37 that the lowly will inherit the land to be all-inclusive that the lowly will inherit the entire earth. That is not true. That's not what he's doing. In all the sermons I've ever heard concerning blessed are the lowly for they shall inherit the land, there's virtually no mention of the specific Jewish nature of that promise. That even though the entire Gospel of Matthew is saturated in the focus on the coming kingdom of Israel, non-dispensationalists have said openly that inherit the land of Psalm 37 has now become and been changed to the earth of Matthew 5, verse 5. This is based on their belief in what, what we call New Testament priority which believes that the promises of Israel are now altered 
by their rejection of Israel as Messiah, that the church is now Israel and the church receives those promises spiritually or, or at least the promises to Israel are somehow globalized to be general in nature. And even by evangelicalism as a whole, including many dispensationalists, they often just concede that ground. They just give it up and surrender to the usual interpretation that inherit the earth is a general term that means either you'll be in heaven or on new earth and nobody really knows what it means and you move on. Many argue that Jesus is speaking in general of the whole world and that this is, this is not a reference to the specific promises of God to Israel concerning the fact that they will possess the land of Israel for all time under the reign of Messiah. Those who argue that this is speaking of the entire earth put forward several evidences. For example, they would say in the context of Matthew, Jesus' nearest reference to earth is general in nature. Matthew 5, 13 and 14, no need to turn there. We're told to be the salt of the what earth and the light of the world. And the parallelism of earth and world suggests that they're synonymous in verses 13 and 14. But the Greek term for world is used radically all over the New Testament. So assuming that just because two of them are close together, that they mean the same thing, that's just an assumption. There's no proof of that whatsoever. Or they might say that the context of Matthew 6, verse 10, which is just in the next chapter, your will be done on what? Earth, as it is in heaven, clearly refers to all of earth as opposed to all of heaven. But again, world or earth is used radically differently all over the New Testament. And that doesn't negate somehow the reiteration of the land promises of all the Old Testament as being referenced by Jesus in Matthew 5. Or they might say that Matthew used this particular Greek word, translated world, uh, in, in Matthew 5, 5 as earth rather, 43 times in Matthew. And whenever he uses it to specify a particular geographic location, Often he has a qualifier, like the land of Judah or the land of Israel. But you must acknowledge that Jesus' reference in Matthew 5.5 is clearly Psalm 37. That that supersedes every other argument. It's literally a quote. There's no indication that somehow Jesus is changing the meaning. The argument is, well... The meaning has changed because Israel rejected Messiah. Even for those who believe that Jesus was changing the meaning of Psalm 37, those who believe that the church has somehow become Israel or replaced Israel, they believe this is due to Israel's rejection of Messiah. But here's a really simple chronological fact for us. When Jesus taught the Beatitudes, the rejection of Messiah hadn't happened yet. As a matter of fact, Israel still had a chance to receive Jesus as their king Jesus even made this offer in his triumphal ride toward Jerusalem when many were worshiping him, calling him the son of David. That's a way of saying the rightful king. Obviously, obviously all true believers will be partakers in the glory of the whole earth when Christ has arrived. There's no argument there. But was that what Jesus was referencing precisely? No. Jesus has promised to a Jewish audience that the lowly will inherit the earth is a clear callback to Psalm 37 and it's a reaffirmation of the Old Testament land promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to all of Israel of a coming kingdom with a permanent, peaceful possession of Israel. And I know this is 
They're probably a little bit different than what you've heard before, so I, I don't want to ask you to take my word for it. I want to give you five evidences that inherit the earth should be inherit the land of Israel, that that's what Jesus is talking about. The first evidence we'll call the translation evidence. The translation evidence. And I know we have to get into the weeds a little bit here, but it's important to be precise. The Greek word translated earth is a general word. It can refer to many different things, even in Matthew. It refers to soil in Matthew 13. It refers to the ground in Matthew 10 and Matthew 25. It refers to a socio-political region of the world in Matthew 2 and in Matthew 9. Most English translations that have footnotes will tell you that earth can refer, that the Greek word for earth can refer to land, it can refer to earth, it can refer to a specific geographical location. So the translation evidence, it's very easy for that word to mean multiple things. The context evidence. Secondly, the context evidence. In the context of Matthew 5, it is speaking specifically of inheritance. Blessed are the lowly, for they shall what? Inherit the earth. This is a clear callback to Psalm 37. Now, why is this important? We put those two facts side by side in the Old Testament. Almost every single reference to the idea of inheritance refers to Israel inheriting the land. Almost every time. The Jewish nature of Matthew's gospel makes it almost certain that the Jew hearing that the lowly will inherit the earth would have only one context for this. They would have only one option. If you came up from Bakersfield, California and said, isn't that great that we're going to get the whole world? All the Jews there would say, what are you talking about? We're talking about the land that we're standing on right now. That's the only way they would understand that. Here's a third line of evidence we'll call the precision evidence. The precision evidence. In the Gospel of Matthew, when Matthew as the writer or Jesus as the speaker wants to refer to the entire world, he makes it clear. Matthew 16, 26, Jesus said, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Matthew 24, 14, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Matthew 26, 13, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, if Matthew was making a major shift, if your Bibles ought to have a little asterisk or a footnote that says, Jesus is now changing the meaning of Psalm 37, I think he would be clearer. He would be abundantly clearer. It's the fourth line of evidence we'll call the consistency evidence. The consistency evidence. Matthew 5.5 5 is a clear, direct reference to Psalm 37. And listen carefully, nowhere, nowhere in the New Testament does a reference to the Old Testament change the original context of the Old Testament? You know how many times? 365 times. It never changes the context of the Old Testament. You're going to be pretty hard-pressed to say, except this time. The meaning of Psalm 37 is the inheritance of the land of Israel. That's what it meant when David wrote it, and that's what it meant when Jesus quoted David. And one more, the pattern evidence. We'll call the pattern evidence. The Jewish inheritance of Israel doesn't somehow make Matthew 5, 5 irrelevant to the Gentile believer. And let me just sidestep this for a minute. Where, where is this doctrine of the church replacing Israel or that this has to mean the whole world or that we don't really want to focus on the nation of Israel? Where is that? What's that rooted in? It's rooted partly 
in an inability to grasp that God loves the Jews and God loves the Gentiles and that he's big enough to work that out. That there's no jealousy there. In fact, the book of Romans says that God gave Gentiles to make the Jews jealous. What's the pattern? In the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah, the pattern is that Gentiles are thrilled and overjoyed at the peace and prosperity of Israel in the coming kingdom. There's no jealousy. There's, there, there's no sense of, of uh, oh, I was born in India. I, I should have been a Jew. There's none of that. For example, Isaiah 49, 23, speaking of future Israel, kings will be your guardians and their princesses your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet then you will know that I am Yahweh. Those who hope in me will not be put to shame. There's a Jewish scholar, Dr. Derek Lehman, and he's made quite a study of what Isaiah says about Gentiles in a positive sense. Now, Isaiah also talks about the judgment of Gentiles, but save Gentiles, Isaiah speaks to this. And listen to Dr. Lehman's assessment. He says, in the scroll of Isaiah, Gentiles are not an afterthought. Israel's chosenness is about teaching the nations who God is. Also in Isaiah, the Gentiles are not just recipients of revelation from Israel. The Gentiles also reveal God to Israelites, even bringing Israelites back to God. He's referencing passages where Gentiles will be bringing Jews to Israel at the beginning of the millennial kingdom of Christ. He continues on. The Gentiles are both recipients and revealers. In the same way, Israel on the whole is a revealer, but many Israelites are recipients. The light of God shines through Israel to the nations, but in many cases, the nations receive the light better than Israelites. So that in the end, Gentiles are bringing back Israelites in their arms to God. So it is inherit the land of Israel. Now, I said that our third statement concerning the lowly is that Jesus asserted his kingly sovereignty by saying, blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth or inherit the land. What do we mean that Jesus is asserting his kingly sovereignty? Follow my logic. The greatest king in the history of Israel was King David. Glorious king. He brought peace to Israel with many wars. He crushed the enemies of Israel. David is the author of Psalm 37. David is the one who stated with confidence in 37 verse 9, for evildoers will be cut off, but those who hope for Yahweh, they will inherit the land. He said in verse 11, but the lowly will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant peace. He said in verse 29, the righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. And he wasn't able to do it. He couldn't do it. He reigned for 40 years. And you know how his reign ended? It it ended with him weak and in bed and barely able to move and two of his sons vying for the throne, nearly starting a war. Solomon rightly won out, but Solomon's son Rehoboam failed and the kingdom split. The people failed. The kingdom fell into exile and ruin and despair. David, the greatest king in the history of Israel, was unable to bring about the promise of God that the lowly will inherit the land. He couldn't do it. In fact, they lost the land. But God promised David something. 
He said in 2 Samuel 7, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You see, by referencing Psalm 37, Jesus is is saying in essence, King David couldn't give you that inheritance. He couldn't give you peace in your land for all time. He couldn't give you all the promises given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to all of Israel. But I will. I'll do it. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the one who will make all of God's promises come true. That the spiritual people in Psalm 37 who are waiting on the Lord, waiting on the consummation of all of redemptive history, they will receive the promises God made to Abraham. So when Jesus said, Blessed are the lowly, for they will inherit the earth, he just made a guarantee that said, I'm the king that's going to make it happen. Now, you may recall at the very beginning of our time together, I reminded you that our focus in the Beatitudes is the joy of the Christian and that the true joy that we have is rooted in expectation, in anticipation. It goes far beyond emotion, goes far beyond a feeling. So how does this study in Bakersfield, California, as far away as you can get from the land as possible almost, How does this study of the fact that Jesus is reaffirming the promises of a peaceful inhabited Israel in the coming kingdom of Christ on earth, how does that give joy? You're meant to have joy being lowly, waiting on submitting and being reviled and being insulted and being mocked because you serve a God who made the promise of a specific land to a man named Abraham even showing him the land. Abraham was told to walk back and forth in the land. This promise was made 4,000 years ago. This promise has been reaffirmed hundreds of times in the Old Testament. And when the Son of God came to earth to pay for the sins of all who would repent, to make it possible to be lowly, to make it possible to be a kingdom citizen, to make it possible to be part of the, the future millennial kingdom, he came saying, You remember all those land promises that God has been making literally for thousands of years? I'm the guy who's going to make it happen. The joy comes from knowing that this is the Savior you serve. A powerful, potent, promise-keeping potentate. How powerful he is. And what do you do in the meantime? Trust in the Lord. Delight in the Lord, wait on the Lord, hope in the Lord, obey the Lord, listen to the Lord, rest in the Lord, and be lowly. Do we have an example of lowliness? We have the greatest example. Even Jesus was lowly. Even Jesus endured humiliation while he waited. He offered himself to Israel as their king. In fact, he did so officially in lowliness riding the colt of a donkey, a a pack animal. But he will come back again to bring to fruition all the promises of God. Zechariah 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Make a loud shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, lowly and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt to the foal of a pack animal. 
I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be, will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his reign will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. If that can't make you joyful, I don't know what to say. That anticipation means that every birthday you have is not a source of grief. Every birthday you have is, that's one more year closer. It's one more year closer. Trust in the Lord, delight in the Lord, wait on the Lord, hope in the Lord, obey the Lord, listen to the Lord, rest in the Lord, and then do what the Lord does. Sit back and watch and laugh with him because there will be a day when your laughter will not stop Your joy will come to fruition. I hope that that helps you have joy. It does for me. I know it does for all who will trust in the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are truly able to be joyful because of what's coming. This very day, literally this this calendar day, might include pain for many people here might include grave difficulties for many here. We, we think of our, even our brother Robert who is preparing himself in hospice to go home to the Lord. His joy is about to be made complete. This very day might have difficulties, might have embarrassments, might have humiliations, might have grief and, and anguish. Tomorrow may have that. Every day of our lives may have that. But we pray, Lord, for the grace and the power to be lowly, to trust, delight, wait, hope, obey, listen, rest. Because we will be there when our glorious Savior comes riding not on a humble colt of a donkey, but on the back of a war horse to take the world that rightly belongs to him, ruling from the capital city, which is in the capital nation, of the world that belongs to him. And in that day, our joy will be utterly complete. In the meantime, I pray that our joy by faith is complete now, looking ahead in anticipation and in expectation, all to the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.